Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us how God promised Adam and Eve another seed with Seth after Cain had killed Abel. This message is available for free download at friendshipwithgod.org. Father, thank you so much for being our God. Not just the God of the universe, but our God. Lord, which speaks so much of the time when you decided to come down. Reveal yourself to us. Open your arms to us. Invite us to come to you. And you became our God. Now, Lord, we want to hear from our God this morning. As we open our Bibles, open our hearts, we pray to hear from you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, just two verses this morning. Genesis chapter 4, verses 25 through 26. And it goes like this. And Adam knew his wife again. And she bare a son and called his name Seth. For God, said she, hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew, and to Seth. To him also there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. All right, now, in our last study, what we saw in the line of Cain, we saw him build his community, the community of Cain. And this was a godless community because they wanted lives without God. They wanted families without God. They wanted conversations among themselves that didn't bring God into the talk. They wanted cultures without God, governments without God. They wanted science without God. They wanted to sleep without God. They didn't want to dream about God. They wanted to wake up without God. And they wanted any assistance that they needed in life without God. And that's how you characterize the line of Cain. It is a line that is without God. Why? Because they did exactly what it says in Romans 128. You can characterize this line like this. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. Then it says God gave them up and so forth. That phrase, they did not like to retain God, that characterizes the line of Cain. I don't like to say political things, but it's very interesting that the Democratic National Committee removed God from their platform and Jerusalem. That should have been a message to both Christians and Jews. Why do they do that? Because they did not like to retain God in their platform. And all of this description of the line of Cain, the lives, they did not like to retain God. They wanted new lives without God. It leaves us as we study this, and especially if we get around these type of environment, it leaves us with a deep sense of an emptiness and a void. And like being in a howling wind is the way it makes us feel, this without God. And we're not like, we don't want to be that. And so last week, as we left the last words of Lamech, where it all culminated in him, and we saw in verse 24, a man who not only murdered, but bragged about his murders. And he, we felt just so terrible inside, and it makes us look up to heaven and ask God, why are you allowing this to happen? 
Why are you allowing this terrible scene to develop like this? Why? This is your earth, God. This is your creations. Why are you allowing this earth to be so much not thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Why, God? And the answer comes back to us because God is looking for those individuals within the line of Cain who will say, enough, that's it. I personally am tired of living a life without God. I must have God. I will run out and cross over the line. I'll run over to the other side with God. And God wants that. And to those individuals in the line of Cain, God stretches out his arms to them. And he's just like he's saying in Romans 10, 21, to Israel he saith all day long, have I stretched forth my hands all day long, all millennia long, all time long since Cain was born. He's been stretching forth his hand. In particular case in Romans 10, speaking about Israel, he calls them a disobedient and a gainsaying people. But he stretches out his hands. It's God. And he's reaching out to Cain and he's saying to them, go ahead, cross over the line, run over, come over to the with God side. I'll take care of you. I'm the good shepherd. That's what he's saying. Now, Seth, we've studied chapter four. We focused our attention on Cain and his line. But now let's just turn back and look at two other individuals and ask the question, what's going on with them? Who are those individuals? Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. Just think what it was like for them. Chapter 4 that we've been studying was a pretty rough time for the couple, Adam and Eve. This chapter started off with the couple so hopeful that at last their personal dilemma was going to be solved. And Eve spoke for both of them when she said, I have finally gotten the man God, the Savior. But she was wrong, they were wrong. And instead, they watched Cain grow up to be, not the man God, Savior, but the devil. And that he was. And they lost hope. And in verse 2, as they named their next child Abel, or vanity, they were naming him, he is a breath that has come and gone. And that statement of despair in verse 2 of the meaning of Abel's name is really the last time that we hear from Adam and Eve, or Eve for Adam, as the rest of the chapter just develops out. And it's a really hard time for Adam and Eve because they just sat back and they watched the most horrifying scenes develop right in front of their eyes. And they can't believe it. They're watching in horror as they sit back and they see their son Cain develop into a self-willed, arrogant rebel against God and his ways. And so Adam and Eve, they just sat back and they watched in horror as their son Cain rejected God's gracious warning before he murdered Abel. And they watched God graciously advise Cain. Cain, 
As God was seeing what was going on in his heart, the anger that was rising up, God was advising Cain, Cain, throw down your weapons of rebellion against me. Take a stand against your sinful anger inside of you. That was verses 6 and 7. And Adam and Eve just watched in horror as they saw their son Cain rise up and kill his brother Abel in verse 8. And Adam and Eve just watched in horror as they sat back and they saw Cain, their son Cain, lie to God about what he had just done when he killed Abel. And then they saw their son Cain push back God with that sarcastic remark about, am I my brother's keeper in verse 9. And Adam and Eve just watched in horror as they saw their son Cain not repent and cry out to God in mercy when he was caught by God in verse 11. And Adam and Eve just watched in horror as they saw their son Cain worry more about his punishment than the sin that he had committed in verse 13. And then they saw and they watched in horror as their son Cain made his final decision for his life and set the course for his line when he went out from the presence of the Lord in verse 16. And they sat back and they watched in horror as the line of Cain became a people who go out from the presence of God, who do not like to retain God. And that's in verses 17 through 22. And they watch this happen. They are in horrified state as they sit back and they watch Cain's line culminate in their great, 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 great grandson, Lamech, who not only became a murderer like Cain, but went one step further to brag about his murder and to say he would overdo Cain in his murder in verses 23 through 24. So what do you do if you're Adam and you're Eve and you watch this continuation of your physical family, but it's an absolute crumbling as it goes forward, of your family values of godliness. You have family values of godliness. You are Adam and Eve. And you see your son just blossom and prosper and completely destroy and throw down those values and become godlessness. What do you do? And what do you do when you know that your responsibility, because you heard it from God in Genesis 1.28, is to go out and be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth with the seed of God. But your children are the seed of the devil. What do you do? And what do you do when you know that the purpose for a man and a woman, for Adam and Eve, to physically come together is to have children so that God can do what he said he wants to do with this, through this marriage in uh, Malachi 2.15. And did he not make one? Yet had he the residue of the Spirit, and wherefore one, that he might seek a godly seed. What does God want from a husband and a wife? And you know this. And he wants the couple to provide him with the opportunity to seek a godly seed. 
And yet Adam and Eve have come together physically and have produced an ungodly seed. And what do you do? What do you do when you know that God wants you to have children so he can seek a godly seed and you produced a seed of the devil? And you say to yourself, maybe it was me. Maybe it's my fault. Maybe I didn't do a good job training up Cain in the way that he should go. And maybe I'm to blame. And you sink into a deep depression as you think about you and your wife and how you must have failed to obey God. What do you do? And what do you do when you love God so much and all you really want to do in life is just to please God. You want to make him happy, don't make him mad. And you want to give God, you want to present God, say, look God, look what I did for you. I'm presenting to you a godly seed. And that's what you want because the Bible talks about a vision, a chazon. And it says a vision or a dream or a chazon is so important in Proverbs 29, 18 because it says where there's no chazon, where there's no vision, the people just perish. They just wither away. And what do you do at the birth of your son Cain when you have such a chazon, you have such a vision that you said, this, my vision for this boy, he's going to be the man God savior. I've got him. And you say that. And instead, your vision, it just vanishes away because he turns out to be a murderous, lying devil. And what do you do when your dreams of life just vanish away? And you're so discouraged and you're so disappointed. And you ex- what, because what you expected didn't happen and what you see is just like breath vanishing away before your eyes. And so you even name your next born son vanishing breath. What do you do? We do as believers what it says to do in these situations in Psalm 27, 14. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. He shall strengthen thine heart. We wait. We ask God to strengthen our weak hearts. And we turn our eyes upon Jesus And we look full in his wonderful face and we wait for his next move. We wait to see what God's going to do next. We do what it says in Exodus 14, 13. Fear ye not, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show to you. We refuse to fear. We turn our eyes upon Jesus look full in his wonderful face, and we wait for his next move. We wait to see what he's going to do. We do what it says in Psalm 25, 15. Mine eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. We wait. We turn our eyes upon Jesus. We look full in his wonderful face, and we wait to see what he's going to do next. Adam and Eve had to go through this. And they turned their eyes from all the horror of seeing Cain and his line develop. And as they turned their eyes away from their own vanishing chazon, their own vanishing vision, and they turned their eyes upon Jesus, and they looked full in his wonderful face, they waited for God's next move. And what was the next move? They saw that as the line of Cain was growing and prospering, it looked like there was no hope. There was no chazon. There was no vision for the people of God, which numbered two, Adam and Eve. 
And when it looked like the people of God were just going to able, just going to vanish away like a breath, then God made his move. That's verse 25. Verse 25, and Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son and called his name Seth. For God, said she, hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. That word that's used there for another, acher, it means next. Next. Remember? Wait for God's next move. It means next. It's the same word that God used when he told Abraham and Sarah that they were going to have, in the most unlikely circumstances, a son Isaac in Genesis 17, 21. And he said this, But my covenant will I establish with Isaac, which Sarah shall bear unto thee at this set time in the next year. Our God is the God of the next. Our God is the God of the another, as in seed. Our God is the God of the again. And so why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ is seeking a godly seed. And he said that he would not be deterred in seeking this godly seed. Because in Malachi 2.15, we know that the godly seed is his church. And his church is the body of all believers. That's his church. And he spoke about it in Matthew 16, 18, when he said, I'll build my church. And then he didn't say, I'll tell you what, but I'll put it in there. And I'll tell you what. He says, the gates of hell won't prevail against it. He says, I'm going to do it. And the line of Cain will not prevail against it. I will build my church. Tom, as we ended our study today out of Matthew 16, 18, we talked about a very important verse in the Bible says that I will build my church. Now, what is, what is the Bible referring to when it says, build my church? That's a very good question. You know, we pass buildings and it says this church and that church. And, and so it's very easy for us to think that what is being referred to is this building or this particular group here. But actually, the Bible is referring to, when it says the church, to something very, very specific. It's given to us in Colossians chapter 1, where where he says, and he is the head of the body, the church. So the body is the church. It says in Colossians 1.24, it says that, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which behind of the affliction of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. So it's the body of Christ. It's the invisible worldwide body of all believers of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the church. And that's important for us to understand, that the church is all believers of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an invisible group because it's not all meeting in one building, in one denomination, in one group. But from heaven, when he looks down, the Lord Jesus Christ, he sees his body as made up of all believers and followers of him. That's why he said to Paul on the road to Damascus, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Well, who was Saul persecuting? Saul was persecuting believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. But for the Lord Jesus Christ, those believers were him. That was his body. That's why the church is all believers around the world. 
And also in that same verse, it spoke about that the gates of hell wouldn't be able to come against the church. So what are the gates of hell referring to? Well, the gates of hell, the key to understanding the gates of hell is in the word gates, because the gates of hell are the entrances to hell. And just like when you go up to someone's house and they have that little welcome mat there, think of that for the gate. In other words, it's a place of invitation. It's a place where the effort is made to try to get someone into them, into into the house, for example. So it's speaking of the entrances or the places of invitation. So the place of invitation into hell will not be able to prevail against the church. In other words, there is a desire on the part of hell. There is a there is a wantingness to draw people in to hell. That's why it says in Isaiah 5:14, therefore hell hath enlarged herself and opened her mouth without measure. In other words, hell wants to consume. Hell wants to draw in. Hell is pictured as a mouth. Hell is pictured as a mouth that doesn't have a limit for how wide it opens. So that's what is called also the gates of hell. That's why it says in Proverbs 27.20, hell and destruction are never full. So the gates of hell are referring to the desire of hell to bring more and more men into that eternity of eternal suffering. And of course, you're saying that the church cannot be taken into that entrance of hell, but how are they trying to prevail against the church today? Yes, and that's very important because the gates of hell are trying to prevail against the church, and here's how they do it. First, step one, dislodge the truth dislodge the truth. What is the truth? In John 17, 17, the Lord Jesus Christ said, thy word is truth. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. So it's a sanctifying or a cleansing truth. And it's the Bible. It's the word of God that is truth. Now, the gates of hell seek to dislodge the truth. How? Genesis 3, 1, it says the serpent was more subtle than any beast And it says, and he said unto the woman, yea, hath God said. Those three words, hath God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Hath God said. That is the first step to dislodging the truth is to doubt the truth. Doubt the Bible. Did God really say that if you sin, that you will be heading right for hell? Did God really say that the only way to heaven is through the Lord Jesus Christ? See, all of those are the efforts to dislodge the truth by doubting the truth, doubting the Bible. Next, the next part is to deny the Bible. And that's the next verses down in Genesis 3 and verse 4, where the serpent said unto the woman, ye shall not surely die. A bold-faced lie, a bold-faced denial of the Bible. It, that's why it's so very important to believe literally Genesis 1 and 2, where it says that God made the world about 6,000 years ago, and it was made in six literal 24-hour periods. I wasn't there. Who am I to argue with God? So we believe it because we do not want to get into the devil's course of doubting the Bible or denying the Bible. 
Next, to ensnare in sin. In 2 Timothy 2.26, we read that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. Sin is a snare. Sin is a trap. Sin makes a person a servant to sin, and that's an ensnaring. And then the other thing that the devil does is to replace, once he's dislodged the truth, once he's got a person to doubt it, to deny it, then he replaces truth with error. And that we see in Matthew 15, 9, where it says, in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And in Matthew 15, 6, it says, And honor not his father or his mother, he shall be free. Thus have you made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. When tradition goes in and replaces truth, when it's so important that every day I must wear a yarmulke, on every day, twice a day, I have to put on tefillin, when at everything that goes into my mouth, it must be kosher food. What are those? Those are the commandments of men. That is the tradition. And what does tradition do? It makes void or none affect the commandment of God. That's replacing truth with error. Thank you for joining us today. Now, we've got a great new resource for you from Tom Cantor. It's a wonderful DVD teaching called What is a Jew by Choice versus a Jew by Birth? Tom Cantor passionately teaches in this DVD on the history of the choices that the Jewish people have made and that we as Gentiles make today by being grafted in. This is an incredible teaching that ties in the Old and New Testament, a great gift for any Christian or a Jewish person searching for the truth and evidence of the scriptures of who the Messiah really is. Now, Tom Cantor isn't just a great radio teacher. He's a great visually animated teacher in this unique DVD presentation. So call us today to get your copy at one 800 247 3051. That's 1 800 247 3051. 1 800 247 3051. Or go to friendshipwithgod.org to go to our online store.